why don't you guys open up to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Last night, as I was preparing my teaching, I was very blessed to be sitting in one of our comfy chairs in our living room, and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, one of my favorite Christmas songs was playing, and I was engrossed in the teaching, but as I looked over towards the tree that we just put up against the background of the brightly lit tree in a dim room, I saw my wife and my, my children. <sighs> I saw my wife and kids, and um, as I paused to watch them, hoping that Kara wouldn't fall off the chair as it tipped forward, um, they were all putting up uh, um, ornaments um, celebrating our Savior. And I had this thought to myself, this is what ought to be. In the last week, having seen poverty and brokenness in the midst of Haiti, people hungry for food, people bathing in water, right next to garbage dumps. I thought many times to myself, this is not what ought to be. And so last night, as I got a chance to see my family, and I thought to myself, this is what ought to be, the contrast was so great because I sat and I saw what love is. I saw what grace is. I saw what God's goodness is. And in that moment, I had a sense of overwhelming thanksgiving. You ever had those moments where life is how it ought to be? You see the goodness of God in life and you think, there is no way to even express the thanks that I have in my heart. I believe this is what Paul had in mind as he wrote the next section of text in Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because of I, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're going to pause there. In this next long run-on sentence, Paul seems to have a little bit of an issue with run-on sentences. He wouldn't do well in English grammar. We see not just the praise that he did in the first one, but we also see thanksgiving. And we've been looking at the marks of a healthy church. And the first mark of a healthy church that we saw the last few weeks, last month, is that Jesus is at the core. And that's what causes him to praise in, in chapter 1, verses 3, all the way through 14. But what we start to see here is an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's really the mark of a healthy church, uh, secondly, is an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's what we're going to be going through the next few weeks, is this idea of living out of thanksgiving. It is so amazing to me uh, to watch my children pray in comparison to how I pray. I automatically want to get to the petition side, the gimme, gimme, gimme side. And I watch my kids and they seem to want to thank first. I 
think we lose, especially as Americans, this idea of living out of Thanksgiving. We do it one day a year and we're really good, but guess what? 24 hours later, we're right back to gimme, gimme, gimme. Black Friday comes quick, right? You ever, you ever find that funny? I find that uh, honestly abysmal that we as a, a society say, yeah, we'll be, thanks, we'll, we'll be thankful for one day, but hurry up and get me to the sales, man. I want more. Give me more, right? It's bizarre. And so we as Christians need to fight against that like crazy, right? And to do that, we need to have an attitude of thanksgiving. And so this is what Paul is moving into here is this idea of thanksgiving. And he erupts with thanksgiving to God uh, because of two things. One, the reason that he just saw the doxology, the praise of God for what he's done, but also he's almost sparked by something he sees, something he hears right there in verse one, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So within this prayer he's about to start on, it starts basically in verse 15 and goes through 19. Paul gives this reasoning, but then he also says, uh, let me show you why I, I think that this praiseworthy kingdom is actually in place. I see it in you. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is this. We're going to see the reason for thanksgiving. The reason for thanksgiving. And that's the good news of the gospel. But this gets dicey because then we have to define what good news or what gospel means. And unfortunately, this is a big debate nowadays. The last few weeks, I've been looking at verses 1 through 14, where Paul breaks into praise toward God the Father for his wonderful plan and work. That our God is such a good Father that he initiated a plan of salvation in spite of our rebellion against him. To bring us back to himself. And that plan established before the ages, before the cosmos even began, it's coming to fruition in the people of Ephesus. And so because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, anyone, even you who may not believe here today, even if you or anyone else, no matter what you've done, if you turn to him and give him your allegiance and follow him, he will grant you forgiveness of sins and hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have redemption through his blood and salvation from the wrath of a holy God. And we know that. But I would suggest to you that Paul gives greater news than that still. That is at the core, but Paul goes on and gives it even more color and texture than just inheriting eternal life. He says that through this work, we have inherited a kingdom. Just as Pat taught us last week, that means we inherit the king, Jesus. We inherit one another, the people. And we inherit the place, the restored and redeemed earth. And all of this is guaranteed through the Holy Spirit to the praise of God the Father until the fullness of unity under Christ is accomplished. Amen? That is the good news. In the Holy Spirit that has been presented to us, we get a preview of that redeemed and reconciled creation. Look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. We'll go back and reread it here. Verse 7, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That's how much he loves you, congregation. He lavished his love, love upon you. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now look at verses 13 and 14. In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is all good news, amen? We've been saved from our sin. And the wrath that should come upon us is not going to be there because it was placed upon Jesus on the cross. But I would say that there is news here that goes beyond the good news of being saved from the wrath of God. It does not discount it or remove it or lessen its importance. But there is a plan here of restoration leading to unity, setting things back to right. There is a plan here of setting things back to the way they ought to be. Now you might say, well, who gets to decide what ought to be means? Guys, we know it when we see it. The mother that has love for her child. The garden before the fall. The stranger who helps someone who's fallen. The person who gives generously. The way things ought to be. And this is what we give thanks for. This is what Paul gives thanks for, that God has inaugurated his kingdom to bring forth his justice and that one day he will see it through to completion. As we study throughout Isaiah, I know that many of us, we struggled about, okay, gospel over here, right? What I've been taught is that I get to go to heaven when I die and I don't have to suffer the wrath of God. But Hans, you keep talking about justice and righteousness over here. How do the two play? And they started to get mixed and I heard all sorts of interesting things from people. Many have been taught that justification alone is the gospel. But guys, let me ask you this. Can you have justification without also sanctification and glorification? No, you can't. To be justified means that sanctification is coming, it's started, and it's in process, and glorification is coming. And dear flock, there is so much more good news than just you and Jesus. There's so much more good news than just me and Jesus, this relationship. It's all of this. That's the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom he's brought us. To go to that child and say, Jesus loves you, hopefully you can figure out your relationship with him, will leave her in that traumatic state and she will not believe that a father can love her. Guess what? The world has told her so. But to add in that horizontal relationship where you give her that glimmer of hope, that her identity is not that, but her identity is a daughter of the Most High King, now you got something to cook with. That's the gospel. The core is absolutely the cross, but the resurrection came three days later. And in our compartmentalization of the gospel in Western culture, we have tunnel-focused so heavily on salvation from the wrath of God against sin that we miss the fullness of the meaning of God's in-breaking kingdom of justice. Think about it for a second. In Western mentality, what does justice mean? When you hear that, that someone's been given justice, what does that mean? Well, usually we think about retributive justice, retribution, punitive justice. They finally got theirs. So justice becomes a bad word in much of our language because to a Christian who's been granted forgiveness to say, you also get justice, wow, I thought you just said that I don't get punished. But see, the point of becoming a Christian is that you are not just given justice, you are justified. You are made justice wherever you go. You are now part of the kingdom bringing justice 
wherever you go. Because this punitive idea, it is in Scripture, but it's only a small piece. Let's remind ourselves for a second of some of Isaiah's statements around justice. Justice is turned back, he says in Isaiah 59, 14. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, Jesus Christ, brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Look at Isaiah 51. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Hold on to that thought. My justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. They're not waiting or hoping for punishment to come. That's not the justice they want. They're hoping for injustice to be summarily put down by justice. Turn back with me to Isaiah 58. You guys thought you were getting out of there, but we're going back. Go to Isaiah 58. And look at starting in verse 6. Remember that Israel was really great at religious traditions. But in verse 6, this is what Isaiah tells them on behalf of God. God speaks through Isaiah and says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. You want to be religious people, God is saying? You want to actually follow me and honor me? This is what it looks like. Can you imagine if all of our ancestors who had on Sunday practiced singing hymns and then on Monday gone and beaten their slaves, if they had actually read this and understood what it meant, how our nation would be different. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, if someone else is hurting, they're an image of God just like you. You need to reach out. If you do that, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the figure, the speaking uh, speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Notice the words here, restorer, repairer, bringing justice is similar to bringing light. This is not about punitive justice. This is about bringing about what ought to be. And folks, when we relegate the gospel to only be about me and my forgiveness, what guarantee do we have that we're any different from those ancestors who praise God on Sunday and beat their slaves on Monday? What guarantee do we have? When we relegate it to just about me and my forgiveness, it is technically correct but it is like taking a three-dimensional sculpture, a work of art, and only showing one or two dimensions of it. It's beautiful, yes, but it's not fully complete. 
God's kingdom is about so much more than just my personal forgiveness. And I think the reason that so many people argue that that's it is because they're so worried that they might lose it. But let me put it another way. For so many people, Jesus is the means to attain salvation. Do you guys recognize that what the Bible says is that salvation is the means to attain Jesus? Salvation is the means to attain Jesus, not the other way around. Yes, Jesus is the way, the only way. There is no other. He's both the means and the end. But so many Christians I hear talk, it's almost as if Jesus is great right now, but then when they get to heaven, they get to go do their own thing and Jesus gets left behind. God's kingdom is about so much more than our personal salvation. The love of God is not a means to the end. It is the end. And faith and hope find their fulfillment in this love of Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Here's what it says. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Yes, faith. We're saved by grace through faith. I have hope of the future. Yes, you're right. But look, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. How does that operate in your gospel narrative? Do you love the people around you? Do you allow them to love you? Do you let that love pour out? Because in being saved, we're not only called to be saved, get to go to heaven when we die, so to speak, but we're called to partner with Christ to bring forth justice, which is to bring about what ought to be. And this fully formed view of the good news of God's plan, that unity that will come, is what Paul says is behind the thankfulness that he feels. For this reason, he says. And it's an attitude and way of life that is a direct result of seeing and understanding the fullness of what God has done, is doing right now, and we'll be faithful to complete. And we're going to take just a second right now, and we're going to turn back to the screen, and I want to show you a six-minute video that the Bible Project put together that perfectly captures everything we've talked about in Isaiah and what we just talked about right now, and it's going to bring us up to speed so that I can finish the rest of this. Let's go ahead, and uh, I'll go ahead and go to it right now. There we go. If you were a praying mantis it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. 
Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like... Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. 
It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so this is the glorious work of God, the good news of the Bible, that through Jesus, God the Father has redeemed us from our sin and initiated the in-breaking of his kingdom among his people in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, bringing light and hope to anyone that will listen. We are not saved by our works, but our works come from the fact that we have been reborn in the image of Jesus, operating out of a thanksgiving for the work of God. And so Paul's prayer is that the saints at Ephesus, and by extension us, that we would read this word and that we would understand by the power of the Holy Spirit what the good news of the gospel is and that it would then pour out of us into the fruit of our thanksgiving. The fruit of our thanksgiving. Back in chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians, here's what he says. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. The reason behind Paul's prayer was all of the the message of the gospel prior. But that faith of the Ephesians then led to a life lived out in love. And as we saw in that video, we're given the gift of both forgiveness of our sin, of living in injustice, but also the gift of the life of Jesus Christ to be justice wherever we go. Now here's the immediate tension that we live in, isn't it? As soon as I say this from the stage, people immediately begin going in their heads. So are you saying I must earn salvation by my works? No. Can I be more emphatic? You are so unjust and in sin when you come to know Christ, there is no possible way for you to even try. It is only by his grace and his glory that he gives us the free gift of salvation. From that moment, there is such a massive transformation that occurs in our hearts and minds that slowly but surely, we start taking on his image. Because justice is not just about finding a cause. I heard recently through the scuttlebutt that shouldn't even be occurring in our church, but it does, that, well, Hans is just trying to get us to sign up for one more thing. You know how he does that. If you were the person that said that, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, I'm not trying to get you to sign up for stuff. I'm trying to get you to act like images of Jesus Christ. Covenanting with one another in love. Helping the oppressed. Laying down your lives. Being generous. It seems like I'm trying to bend your arm, but I'm simply stating the word of God towards you. The reality is, is that's what we're all supposed to do. For some of us, it may be to a different extent than others. Some of us might be in the midst of foster care. Others might be in a different area. But being love and bringing justice, no matter where we go, that is who we are. It's kind of like with my kids, you know, when they're like picking boogers or something, I go, guys, we just don't do that, right? Oh, okay, we don't do that. Hey, Christians, taking love and justice to the oppressed, we do that. That's what we do, right? That is who we are. That's all we are. It's like this. You shine a flashlight into a dark room, it doesn't have to think about who it shines light on. Oh, on, off, on. No. 
It just shines its light wherever it goes. Wherever it is, it brings light. To control that light is to put it in a box. And Jesus talked to us about this. Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not just your mental ascent, not just your statement that Jesus is Lord, not just your statement that Jesus saved me, but your good works that flow out of the thanksgiving you have for Jesus Christ. If we make certain that we are acting in this way, we can do so much in this world of darkness. Only Jesus can bring the fullness of restoration, but when we enter in, we become glimmers of light that show what ought to be. Listen to the words of the main character in that movie, Removed. It seemed like the same thing that held me up forced me down. In a world turned upside down and order disappeared. Nothing was how it was supposed to be. And a heavy sadness filled my soul, trapped in the misery of my life, lost in the sorrow of my soul, unable to see the light, unable to see the dawn, to feel, to hope, to dream. It seemed like it was always nighttime and nightmares. Morning would never come. But later, she says, this is not me. It does not have to be what defines my future. I am lovable. I am worthy of care. And that glimmer of light, it makes all the difference. The glimmers of light give me hope that someday my summer will come. You see, the gospel that Jesus gave us is both transactional and transformational. It is transactional in Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might be forgiven, but it is also transformational in that it changes us into reflections of Jesus Christ bringing about justice in an unjust world. We become glimmers of light in the darkness. To focus on only the transactional ends up in a selfishness that just propagates itself and a compartmentalized gospel. To focus only on the transformational leads to the preaching of a false gospel based on salvation by works. They both must be present in tension or we need to question the extent of our faith. Turn with me to James chapter 2 and you'll see what I mean. This is the last place I'll turn you. James chapter 2, verse 14. James 2.14, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What's he intimating there? What's the answer he's intimating? No, it can't. Well, wait a minute. Martin Luther would disagree with him. Calvin would disagree with him. Well, they might, but that's what it says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Guys, you can argue with me all day long. I just quoted the apostle James. The reality is, is that we have a glorious God who gave us a glorious gospel. And so when Paul looks at the reason for his thanksgiving and he sees the gospel, he thinks, God, you are great. But then he looks around and he sees in his brothers and sisters and he hears through the grapevine that the Ephesians are acting in a way that goes along with that gospel. And he says, I give thanks. I wonder what Paul would say he has heard about mission fellowship. Hopefully he would say, man, there is a group of people at that church that loves Jesus and loves people. Man, there's a group of people at that church that they have laid down their lives for each other. And he would say to those of you that that's true, he would say, well done. And to the rest of us, he might say, what are you waiting for? What are you protecting? Why is your kingdom so important to you? Hopefully, my prayer is is that he would say, Mission Fellowship, I give thanks for you because of your faith in Jesus the King and your love lived out among the brothers and the vulnerable of our community. I'm so thankful for the three families that were brought up here on stage. I'm so thankful for those of you that have laid down your lives to assist them and walk with them. We can do more mission. We can do more. Please don't take that as any form of slight that we haven't done enough. There is never enough to do. Do you understand that? Injustice will always exist. But we can do more. We can do more here. We can do more in Haiti. We can do more in Burkina. Not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lowering ourselves in service so that others might be lifted up in love should be the characteristic that defines us. In the early church, that was the earliest characteristic that defined the true Christians was caring for those that were oppressed, especially the orphans. Here's a quote uh, from the Apology of Aristides, the philosopher in AD 125. He says, Falsehood is not found among them, the Christians, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And so corporately, Mission Fellowship, we have seen darkness, but we know we can bring light because we know the light. Jesus Christ is the light. 
And we have a choice to reflect him or to find one more reason why, well, I don't need to serve in that way. For some of you, that means maybe the Lord is putting a call on your heart to become foster parents and step through the very rigorous process. For some of us, it might be to come along as respite care. For others, it might be to keep doing many of the things we already do. But I want to challenge us today to ask two questions of ourselves. First, is my faith being worked out in love within the body? Is my faith being worked out in love within the body? That's what sparked Paul to give thanks. Is my faith being worked out in love within the body? And secondly, is my faith being worked out in love to those Christ calls us to minister to? There are four that are named over and over again in Scripture. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant or the sojourner. Over and over again, we're called to minister to those people. And so we must ask ourselves, are we doing it? And if we're doing it, are we doing it out of marking a checkbox and a sense of obligation to keep our salvation? Or are we doing it because Jesus has transformed us by the same gospel that saved us? And so we should each individually today pray about our calling, what we can do, and in the midst of all of it, to thank Jesus Christ for his inbreaking kingdom. That what we saw on that screen will not always be. One day Jesus will bring what ought to be. And so we can be messengers of that truth and bring the light of what ought to be moment by moment in this world. Let's covenant together, let's draw together to do that as a church. If you are sitting in a place of a little bit of conviction today, join the club and uh, recognize that uh, it's just like, man, it's just like when I'm sitting down with my kiddos and we're having tough conversations. What are you going to do next? Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about what's behind. Look forward to what's ahead. And so cast your eyes upon Jesus and let the thanksgiving for what he's done for us build in your hearts and minds. And then go out and show the world what ought to be. That's what I want you to take away from today. Go out and show the world what ought to be so that when Jesus comes, they'll know who he is and they'll be his. And so I'm thankful for you today. I'm thankful for you to have open hearts and ears and minds to listen. I'm thankful for you to allow the Holy Spirit to move in you with conviction. And I'm thankful that I got to be a part of a church that takes all this very seriously to go out and show the world what ought to be. So we end today with this. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Lord bless you. Go out and show the world what ought to be. We'll see you next week.